0: So how do you go about breaking bad news to people? About 15 years ago or so, I worked as a security guard at Stadium High School. You know, a number of years ago, they did a big revamp of the school, and I was, we had just moved out here from Michigan, and that was the job I could get. And uh, we'd patrol the grounds every hour, and the school's under construction, and you'd have to go throughout the whole thing, and and check, make sure no one was in there causing problems. I was there just a few months. My, the owner of the company was a believer, and he trusted me, and so he promoted me. Gave me uh, more responsibility, better hours, so I could choose my hours, better pay, and I thought, this is great, you know? I'm the guy in charge of the site. Until I had to fire someone. Day after Thanksgiving, I had to, uh, I got a phone call on a Friday from the boss, uh, and uh, said I needed to fire one of the workers there. More or less, you're the guy in charge. Go take care of this, Jeff. I don't remember exactly what I had, what I said. I, I know I was very nervous. The employee had his wife and kids come the day before on Thanksgiving and bring him a meal and instead of just passing it to him, which was allowed. He let them in and they toured the school, uh, which was not allowed. And uh, he was out of the military. Only a few months he needed a job, and I had the privilege to break bad news right before Christmas that he was no longer employed it 's not easy to break bad news to people it 's not always pleasant. He knew he had broken the rules he took it very well actually he knew there was consequences, but it wasn 't something that I relished at all i didn 't enjoy it i 'm sure you 've been in situations in similar ways to having to break bad news to someone. You know, I do it every time I preach. I was thinking about that. I I break bad news every time I preach. But if I'm a good preacher, I also have good news following after that. The best news in the world. Well, the job of a preacher is to do that, but a job of a prophet is to do that. That was the job of Amos. And we're going to turn our attention to the book of Amos. If you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Amos. It's in the Old Testament there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 716. It's right after the book of Joel, right before Obadiah. If you get into the New Testament, you've gone too far. Don't be ashamed to look at the table of contents. It's okay. Amos was a prophet of God, and the prophet's job was to be a spokesman for God, to communicate God's word to, to people, to God's people. The prophets were, were preachers really in a sense who communicated God's words in order to, to transform their audience thinking and affect their behavior. They weren't primarily concerned with writing a, a record of historical period or an es, you know eschatology chart or future events that they could print out later or a systematic preparation of their writing and they're speaking to people. They're real people speaking to other real people trying to communicate urgent messages from God to others, to friends, to fellow followers, and to enemies. And this morning we begin a short series through the book of Amos. Amos is the third of the 12 books of the minor prophets. Amos is considered a minor prophet, not because his prophecy is not important, no, because his book is short. It's minor because it's small. Uh, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, those are major prophets primarily because they're big, they're long books. But Amos was an important prophet, one of the very first writing prophets. He was a contemporary of Hosea and Isaiah and probably Jonah. And so we're going to learn some things, I hope, through through Amos. It's a relatively short book, just 146 verses, but maybe it'll help as we dive into this to give you some context on why Amos is writing this book. So let me give you a little bit of history. Some of you are very excited about that. Some of you are very bored, and you'll check back in in five minutes. But I was thinking through this just to kind of give you context of of what's happening here, why Amos is writing, what's going on. And so if you take notes, you could write down um, five numbers. This may be helpful. They're they're not exact, but 1,900, 800, 700, 600, okay? If you want points of reference to kind of check as we go through here, some history. 1,900, 800, 700, 600. Those are dates. It's not going to be specific. We don't know specifically in all of these things. But let me walk through this to kind of give you some framework of what Amos is going on. Around 1,000 BC, David's kingdom was established and Jerusalem was the capital. But following the death of his son Solomon, who was king, the kingdom split. Okay, so around 1,000 that time. Then the civil war, this, this splitting was 930 approximately, middle of 900. So you have a 1,000 of David's kingdoms established in the 900s, the split happens. Judah's in the south, Israel's in the north. Then comes Amos in the scene around 800 BC. So kingdoms established, right? 1,000, 900, around there, the splits, 800 is Amos. And he will prophesy the end of, of many nations, but as we'll see, of Judah, in Israel. And that'll happen around 700 for Israel. And then 600 is around roughly when Judah is conquered by Babylon. So you see that framework there? Maybe that'll help you kind of give an idea of what's happening through the book of Amos. If you're curious about more of this history, just continue to read your Bible. As we're doing the Bible reading in Chronicles and Kings, it comes back and it gives you these, these frameworks of who's in control, what's going on, who's the king, and what God is doing. And as you're reading through that, you can cross, cross-reference things and see this playing out in, in Kings and Chronicles here in Amos. So Amos comes onto the scene and he's going to prophesy the destruction of both all these countries that we'll list out here, but Judah and Israel. And they won't like it. His message is that justice is going to come. Justice will flow. Not only to the nations that are opposed to God, that have grown comfortable in their sin, but justice will come to his people, will come on his people. We don't know much of Amos. He wasn't a famous Amos. All we read is in this book. We get a few details there. Amos chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Amos, who, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. He's from Tekoa, located south below Jerusalem and toward the the Dead Sea. He was a a sheep and fruit farmer, and he had no lineage to prophets, as we'll learn later in chapter 7. He was ultimately a nobody. No one knew who he was. And, and, and isn't it surprising as you read the Bible, God often calls nobodies? That's who he chooses, nobodies. I mean, you think of the pagan Abram, who would become Abraham, the father of the faithful, or the stuttering Moses, or, or a sheep boy, David, right? They're nobodies from our vantage point. And God continues to do this. And this is Amos. He's a nobody. He's a farmer. And right off in the beginning there, verse 2, he points to the main character in the book. Okay? Listen there as I read just verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Who's the main character? It's not Amos, it's the Lord, it's God. And what is the Lord doing here in verse two? He's roaring. What do you think of when you hear the word roaring? Crowds at a football game, that'll happen in a few hours, right? Or jets that fly overhead, or ocean waves, or a charging army, or your stomach at 11:14 a.m? Roaring. But here, the Lord is compared not to those things. He's compared to a more menacing picture, a pursuing lion. You ever seen a lion before? Ever gone to the zoo in here? It's startling. It's kind of bone rattling. You hear a lion roar. The word roars describes the manner in which God's word came. It came abruptly and ferociously. It should be sobering to listen to this. And Amos begins his preaching to Israel by saying, the Lord is roaring from Jerusalem. And that would have grabbed their attention. God is not silent. He's not indifferent to this world or to his people. But we, as we will see in the first two chapters, the Lord roars against more than just the in, injustices done against his, God's people. He's going to roar against his people who do injustices against others. And I got to tell you, these chapters are hard. This book is hard. I came home a couple days and my wife and my kids were like, how was your day? And I'm like, I'm kind of discouraged. Why is that? I've been reading Amos. It's hard. It is not an uplifting book. It's a little bit depressing. It doesn't get much better in chapters three through five, as we'll see next week, Lord willing. And then chapters six, yeah, that's not really good either. Chapter nine, though, the last five verses, friends, it's good. It's really good. Those five verses point our hearts forward to see that God is is still going to keep his covenant with his people. But you got to make it through the bad news first. You gotta make it through all the bad news to to appreciate the good news. And the bad news this morning is that the Lord roars against his world and his people. So here's the main idea, okay? Here's, it's short. You can write this down. You can probably memorize it here in the few minutes we're together. The main idea is the Lord roars against sin so we should listen. The Lord roars against sin so we should listen. And then two Real simple points, the lion roars against his world, the lion roars against his people. So let's dive in. And, and we're going to kind of walk through this and, and really verse by verse as we walk through here. So we'll end up reading all of the first two chapters of Amos, uh, Lord willing, by the time we're completed. After we read, though, the introduction of verse 1 and 2, Amos now begins these, these, these sermons, these pronouncements, really, of judgment upon these nations Seven nations really surrounding Israel. But, but Amos's primary audience is Israel. He didn't travel to, to these other nations to preach. No, these all these words were spoken to Israel. And, and Amos would use this, this rhetoric of entrapment, as we'll see. Israel believed that their neighbors should pay for their sins. These nations would get what's coming to them. And so Amos would list these seven nations that I said that surrounded Israel. And these, as, as Christians, we understand the word, or the number seven to be special, right? Seven is, is the perfect number, right? It's, it's the number of completion, completion. It's, it's complete. So you can imagine, I'm sure, when, when, when Amos gets, as we'll see, to the last nation, which is Judah, Israel's like, yes, seven, it's done, it's complete. All of my enemies will get it. They're going to finally pay. But as we'll see in the second point, in the middle of chapter two, God was saving the last pronouncement for his own people. It wouldn't be seven nations total, it'd be eight. And and can you imagine probably the shock from these people hearing this? Lumping all of those nations, and, and trust me, there's some wickedness here. Lumping all of that with us, your people, What are you doing, Amos? They would be probably angered at him. Instead of God now protecting Israel, he's going on offense against Israel. It's it's usually easier for us, isn't it, to see the faults of others than to see our own? I'll I'll just, I'll, I'll give you some free advice that has nothing to do with this sermon, okay? If you're married today, This is free marriage advice, okay? Every marriage issue that I sit down with, most people, it's because they're focused on the fault of the other. So if you want your marriage to grow, realize that your biggest problem is you, okay? That's for free. People are easily, though, just... Focused on the sins of other people, and we see this as we go through this. As Amos go through this, we tend to believe the sins of other people are much, much more worse than our sins. I, I've heard it all, Jeff. You don't realize what they've done to me. And if you don't agree, if you're not sure you've ever seen it, just enter a home with multiple kids, and you see within a few minutes. Siblings blaming each other, right? We, we work hard to get the heat of judgment off ourselves and on to someone else. We, we don't like that, 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 that heat. It, it's uncomfortable. And we'll see it through the book of Amos. A few things to mention before we read through these, these pronouncements. Each, each one of these has the same structure. Amos will say for three transgressions and for four. And that's really a literary device. This is poetry, which is also challenging to study. Uh, and Amos says this he 's stressing that these nations have been repeatedly sinning. this wasn't just a one off sin. this is not just three but four it 's just this way of communicating. It just continues on. And there comes a point where God says, "Enough is enough. His patience has run out. And so Amos takes his time and carefully and and soberly lists each nation and their sin. And then the judgment for each nation their sin, you see that in each one of these, they will experience fire. The judgment of fire, essentially their protection, the way they protect themselves will be destroyed. So let's look at the first one, verse three. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Haziel and it shall devour the strongholds of I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avin and him who holds a scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kair, says the Lord. Damascus was one of the strongest and formidable cities located in the northeast of Israel in Aram. And for nearly a hundred years, the Arameans were one of Israel's greatest enemies. Their brutal treatment of their Israelite prisoners during war was, was what kindled God's anger towards them. He, he says they will experience judgment because they threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Threshing refer, refers to the process of separating seed from the stalk. And the process involved an animal walking back and forth over the harvested grain, pulling a heavy sledge of iron, curved upward with knife-like prongs driven through the harvest. And Amos here is describing a horrific, horrific thing as they drove their animals, pulling these sledges, not over food, not over the harvest, but over their Israelite captives. It's a grotesque image, one that God sees and would not forget. War or no war, the king and the Arameans had no liberty to treat people as if they are Things. People are not things. People, all people are made in the image of God. And and anyone who treats other people as things of no value will not escape God's judgment. Next, he goes to Israel's longtime enemy, the Philistines. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they carried in exile the whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelion. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Like the Aramans, the Philistines treated people as objects or things, but with a slight difference. While the Arameans treated people as objects with no value, The Philistines treated people as objects to be exploited for their value. Their sin was that they captured entire towns and sold the people into slavery. Their raids on a town had little to do with war but more to do with kidnapping to make a profit. And their actions here were much like the slave traders of early America who went to Africa and would capture entire villages and enslave them and then sell them for a profit. It's also a lot like the current slavery of our time. Sex slaves sold into the world. Human trafficking. This makes God angry. At first we might not, we might be relieved that we have nothing to do with such wicked acts in our own lives if you spend just a few minutes thinking through this, you might find some more acceptable acts in which this very thing happens in our own society. It might happen in your own business. Whenever an employer fa- fails to pay his employees a fair wage for services that are rendered, it's a, it's a subtle form of wrongfully using other people for personal gain. Friends, we are walking on thin ice when we value things more than we value people. He's not done, verse 9. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Tyre was located on the Mediterranean coast north of Israel, what is modern-day Lebanon. And the Phoenicians there were the inhabitants, and and they were seafaring people whose economy depended on exporting and importing goods. And the Phoenicians often served as, as middlemen in trading, including the trading of slaves. It's possible they were in collusion with Gaza and Edom and their slave trade. 150 years later, the prophet Joel would bring this up in his book, Chapter 3. Even though Tyre played a similar role than the other nations with slave trading, they were no less guilty of treating people poorly and exploiting them. And what's even more deeply troubling was that the very people they sold were their friends. Their depravity was escalated by their disloyalty to their own. God's not done, verse 11. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon t and it shall devour the strongholds of Bozrah. Ba- Edom had an interesting relationship with Israel going back to Genesis with Jacob and Esau who were brothers. The descendants of Jacob was, of course, Israel, and the descendants of Esau was the nation of Edom. These two nations were compared as brothers, as we read in the Scriptures, which makes sense as you study the history. And and theirs is a story of continued betrayal and animosity. Edom's rebellious acts involved chasing his brother with a sword, having no compassion, and exhibiting a continuous attitude of anger and rage that displays itself in uncontrollable ways. It was as if anger of the Edomites continued to fuel itself until it was completely out of control. And I've seen this in humans people who work themselves into a terrible frenzy until their anger boils over. If you've ever worked in the service industry, right, you see this. You know exactly what I mean here. And we're all susceptible to this. And that's why scripture continue to warn us about allowing bitterness and anger to fester and to linger and to live in our hearts. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Ephesians 4, 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The Bible continues to warn us God continues to say, listen to my word. Because what we see in Edom is is that judgment and fire would come and devour them for their uncontrolled anger. But Amos isn't done. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a wall in the fire of Rabbah; it shall devour her strongholds with shouting in the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, and he and his princes together, says the Lord. Like Edom, Israel were distant relatives with Ammonites, who were dependents, descendants of Lot. And these Ammonites lived in a cramped area between Moab and the south, and Israel and Gilead to the west, and Aram to the north, and the Arabian desert to the east and nations believed then to be powerful is to increase their land. Just so you know, that's happening today. And I'll get to that in a minute. But to demonstrate their power and influence was to conquer other nations to have more land. And the Ammonites wanted more land. And it led to such a horrific act. This hideous act of brutality was ripping open of the bellies of pregnant women. And shocking enough, this was not unheard of in ancient Near East. I mean simply put, they're practicing genocide to get more land. They didn't sell people or use people. They murdered people, even the most vulnerable people. I mean can you imagine now Israel hearing these judgments? These are their enemies. It was their women, their children. They longed for justice. God, will you hear? Will you answer? They would be happy to hear judgment is coming. And we can be sure those who treat defenseless women and unborn children with disdain will themselves be judged. God will no longer have patience with Ammonites. He would use the Assyrians and the Babylonians to crush them and they will go into exile. We move to chapter 2. He's not done. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its midst, and I will kill all the princes with him, says the Lord. Moab, too, was a long distance relative to Israel. They were a product of Lot's incestuous relationship with his oldest daughter. And the relationship between Moab and Israel was mostly an open hostility all the time. But in their sin, they, they burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. The king was a symbol of a nation, kind of like a flag for a nation. And so they'd treat this king with such malice. And despicable acts, even for this world, they understand it's wrong. See, the Moabites used the bones of Edom's king as an ingredient in making of the plaster to whitewash their walls. And the message was clear for them. The worth of an Edomite was the same as lime to paint my walls. And in so doing, their act was to dehumanize the Edomites and to portray them as zero value. Now you know why I was depressed for a couple days this week. We just read over and over the wickedness of man. And if you're paying attention now, there's plenty of wickedness today. If you're reading the news, the grotesque and depraved acts are still happening today. You take the Uyghur people, Muslims in China, who are being led Captive to remote parts of China and destroyed in front of a watching, this is 2022. We have the internet everywhere, and they're doing it right in front of us genocide. And China doesn't want you to see it. What about the foolish and tragic removal of troops from Afghanistan? Women and children living day in and day out in a hostile environment under the threat of death at any moment. And then Ukraine. I'm sure there's a multi layers to this, but it's a teetering war that's seemingly to begin at any point with Russia. And what does Russia want? Land or power. Friends, nothing's changed. It doesn't seem like anything's changed since Amos. Human wickedness is still very much alive. All of the atrocities. To the fact that now human sex trafficking is so high, they say that Seattle, just 30 minutes down the road, friends, is the highest in the U.S. And it's gotten higher during COVID. People using people for their selfish gain, people selling people as objects, people destroying other people for more power, people thinking that they will get away with it. But God is sovereign over all the nations. The Lord will hold each nation and every person accountable for their sin for their inhumane treatment of others now this is something interesting for us to understand in the context of what's happening here when amos is speaking to israel and to these nations these nations would probably hear about these pronouncements made against them by amos and they wouldn't know who this god was Who is this God? Who is this one that makes this judgment against us? We don't care what this God says or what he thinks. They wouldn't know the God of the scriptures. They're following their own gods, their own ways. But you need to understand they're still guilty. And there's a lesson for us to learn, especially if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. This is something you need to listen to. You don't have to acknowledge who God is and what God says for Him to judge you. He is sovereign over all, and He will judge you whether you acknowledge Him or not. And you may think you can just live any way that you please. And that you can just let the chips fall where they may. You think you can opt out of this God? You can just opt out of Christianity and Jesus? Friends, the Bible is clear. God will still judge you. There is one creator, one judge, one God, and he will judge everyone one day. And you will stand before this God, and he will judge your life. And if you stand before him all by yourself, you won't make it. And I don't want that for you. There's lots of people seated here that don't want that for you. If you stand before this God, and because of faith in Christ, he stands with you. And you'll be saved, not because of you, but because of him. And that's the only way you stand and make it through. Your only hope is to run to Jesus, to hide underneath him, that he is your rock. He is the, the cleft that we sang about, that we hide in. We also need to understand as we read through this that God cares about people he cares about how we treat people especially those who are defenseless and weak god is opposed to all sin most definitely but he is especially opposed to those who take advantage of others who lack basic human decency and so friends perhaps you're here and you've been mistreated physically or sexually we weep with you friend We mourn with you for all that you've lost. But you need to understand God knows what you've suffered, and God is not silent towards that sin. He roars against that sin, and He will deal with that sin. It doesn't take away the suffering in the moment, I understand. We do suffer for sins committed against us. But you need to understand that God is not deaf and He's not blind. He hears and He will answer. So the lion roars against His world. As we move to the second point, we realize that God would hold His people to even a higher standard than the world. Jesus said to his people, and we'll read it a little bit later, God said this, in fact, earlier in the Old Testament, that we're to love God and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Amos will communicate the roaring that isn't just directed towards the world, it's roaring against his people. We come to Judah, and this pronouncement would have surprised the people. It would surprise them because Judah is included on in the list together with these heathen nations. And yet Amos includes them here as if to say, No one's exempt, regardless of your standing. Another reason this would be surprising is because of the nature of their sin, which is so different, it seems, from us than the other six, which is horrific towards people. And last, it would be surprising because Amos, where is he from? He's from Judah. He's from his own country and, and, and essentially attacking his countrymen. And so what we see here is Amos faithfulness to preach God's message. Here's what he says. Verse, chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. But their lives, their lies, have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So we've seen debauchery and, and degradation and, and treachery and brutality and indecency in these other nations. <laughs> And so Judah's sins of despising the Lord's instruction and failing to keep his statutes may sound less serious, but that's only because we don't understand the holiness of God, or we forget it. Judah's sin was actually more serious, and so will Israel's. Why? Why? Because the other nations acted against God's general revelation, their common conscience. But Judah had more. Judah had a history of God's revealed presence and his continued faithfulness. They had a history of prophets and God's proclaimed word to them. They had a unique opportunity to be in a covenant relationship with the God of the universe. And Jesus says, too much is given, much is required or if you prefer Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. It's true. Judah had ignored the Lord, essentially, and they had digressed into sin. They rejected God's covenant of grace and love in their hearts. And what we learn is that open rebellion against God begins with hidden rejection of him and his word in your heart. That's why the psalmist And the longest chapter in the Bible, reminds us over and over and over again of listening and heeding the word. In Psalm 119, verse nine, how can a young man keep his way? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Friends, there is a difference in having God's word and clinging to God's word. How many of you have a Bible? Raise your hand. I'm just going to check and see if you're actually going to do it. Many in Amos Day had a Bible too. They had the Scriptures. They had possession of God's Word. But as we see here, they didn't cling to it. They didn't think it was important to be soaked in it. They didn't think they really needed to to read it and to know it and apply it. And I wonder if that same issue is still prevalent today. How many Americans are willing to fight for the Ten Commandments to be displayed publicly and yet their Bible's on a shelf gathering dust? How many want prayer to be brought back into the school but check out when we pray together here as gathered? How many want a Christian nation but seldom work towards a Christian home? I wonder how many more are concerned about putting God's word up on display for the world to see more than they are worried about clinging to it in their life privately. See, God sees all of our hypocrisy. judah had received god's word but instead of clinging to it and living it out and and walking with their god they chose a different path they would go to worship but they lived a life opposed to him see friends just because you come to church each sunday doesn't mean you're a christian just because you give financially and even serve doesn't really mean you're actually following god They need to listen to God's word, to seek to obey God's word. And in case, friend, you've convinced yourself that attending church removes God's threat of judgment on your life, allow me to suggest that a church is a horrible place to hide from God. He will find you wherever you are and he will certainly find you in the pews. God isn't fooled by our church attendance. He sees us. He knows us. See, Amos here, as we see, most difficultly was compelled to prophesy, to share God's word. And so, friends, we should be compelled to listen to God's word. Our church should be shaped by preaching and teaching of God's word. Our lives should be spent in learning God's words and seeking to apply them to all of our life. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, the only hope we have to offer you is in God's word. That's where all hope lies there. The Bible tells us about Christ and the hope of forgiveness of sins and the newness of life in him. And friend, you need to read the Bible I don't know if you know this, but as elders, we regularly read a book together and we discuss it. And we've been reading a book by by Shai Lin. And in this book, at the beginning, he gives his testimony. And this is what he says. I found this striking. He says this. I had rejected the Bible without ever reading it for myself. I had so many arguments against Christianity. In fact, I like debating with Christians to try to try to make them look foolish. But all the arguments I had against the Bible were things that I had been told by others I just kept repeating their arguments. I had never actually picked up a Bible and read it. And I wonder how true that really is right now. Can I encourage you to pick up a Bible and read it? You know, I've shared this with a few different people. And I heard this from another pastor uh, later earlier this year. But, but someone got saved at a football game by the sign John 3.16. And the story goes, two friends at a football game, both unbelievers, and one turns and mocks the sign. You see that guy? John 3:16. What's that? And the other guy doesn't know. He's like, "I don't know. what is it? I think it's in the Bible. And he opened the Bible and he read the Bible and he got saved. So even heathens, right? God uses anything. It's His word. And so you may sit here, and you may have all sorts of judgments against the Bible, and yet you've never opened it. You've never read it. So can I encourage you to do that? That's why we put Bibles in our seats. We want you to have a Bible if you don't have one, but we want you to read it. It's not just decoration. And if you're unsure what you're reading, can I invite you to ask a friend that you're sitting with right now? Just ask someone, would you read the Bible with me? And then ask them all the questions you have. They may not have all the answers, that's all right, but read the word. Read of this one Jesus that we keep talking about week in and week out here. His name is Jesus, and he lived a perfect life, and he died a gruesome death to pay for your sins against the Holy God. And so read the Bible, dive in and soak it up. And understand and listen to the Bible. Because that's what we learn in these verses. As Judah here, this is what they neglected. This is their greatest sin. Is they had opportunity to listen and they failed to do it. You know, instead of a nation of Judah becoming a light to the nations and showing the glory of God, they became an example of what happens when God's people reject him and are found unfaithful. But it wasn't just Judah. No, Amos turns to Israel now, and it's bad. Israel is no better than the heathen nations. I can imagine the crowd gathering around Amos, enjoying what they're hearing, going through the six nations and realizing how evil it's been, and 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 getting to Judah and thinking, oh yeah, you know, yeah, Judah, you should have known better. You should have followed the Lord. And now it's seven. It's done. It's good. We're we're good. We're good. And now he goes to Israel. You know, incidentally, one of the fastest ways to build a friendship with someone is to complain together about the issues of other people. If you don't believe me, just get on social media. Right? And that's where Israel essentially is doing like, yeah, those people are bad. Oh, yeah, they're bad. Yeah, hey, we should be friends. Those people are bad. What Amos is doing, really God, is is cleverly drawing Israel into the center of the circle of judgment, and now it's time to expose them. It's kind of similar to the prophet Nathan and King David. Do you remember that story in 2 Samuel? Kind of the same thing. Rile them up again of the sins of others, and David's response, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, this is you. This is what Amos does here. They're easily admitting those sins of those nations and and easily admitting that they deserve God's wrath. Because it's it's easy to see the sin of others. It's it's much a different thing to come and realize your own sins and failures. And Amos here is going to help them. Verse 6, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned and they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. There's four sins here that I see that Amos points out. First is their greed. In verse 6, they're guilty of selling into slavery those who had been accused of owing them money. Instead of showing mercy for such a trivial matter, paying back the amount of a pair of sandals, he says, they enslave people by making it impossible for them to pay their debt. and In other words, they they were selling people into slavery for nickels and dimes for a pair of flip-flops. And so in this case, technically they're right, but they're wrong. Second, they're the guilty, guilty of pride. They were treating the poor like dirt that they walked on. The poor had literally no rights, no way to get themselves out of their dilemma. And they treated them with disdain, essentially exploiting them. And it shouldn't be this way. Proverbs 22:22 says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate. It should know this. It should know the response to the poor and how God views the poor and they mistreat them. Third, they're guilty of gross immortality. Immorality, excuse me. He shares the cruel wickedness of a father and son who have, who have their way with a young female, probably a household employee. And this is utterly wicked behavior. And this probably poor maiden who would be taken advantage of, she could do nothing about it because she needed the money. And what's the result of this irrehensible behavior? It says God's holy name is profaned. Every act of oppression against another human being is ultimately uh, profaned of the Lord's name. The Lord's witness is tarnished in this. And God is greatly concerned with his reputation among the nations. Last, they're guilty of hypocrisy. The upper class of Israel found their sins before the Lord, F- excuse me, they, they found it and, and, and and showed their sins before the Lord in the religious feast. The wealthy people who were owed money could legally collect the last thing their debtors owned, which was their outer garments. But the law stated that the garments were to be returned to them at night so the destitute and poor could at least be warm at night. But as we read, God's people didn't do that. Again, technically right, but very, very wrong. They kept the garments and would take the garments to the temple, and as he said, they would sit on them. And God would see all of this. Friend, the Lord roars against the sin of his people. Verse 9, yeah. yeah. It was I who destroyed the Amorite before them whose height was like the height of the cedars who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. See, Israel could plead ignorance. See, now he's gonna give them a history lesson. They could plead ignorance when it came to God's dealings with them and his protection of them. God was this, with them through the wilderness. He literally provided them food every morning. I, I don't know if I ever get past this point, but God would provide manna every day. It, it would fall from the skies. Bread. Has that happened to any of you? I mean, it's just astounding, right? Do you, do you think it ever got mundane to see the miracle of manna every morning? You know, I wonder if mom and dad got up and they're making the fire and they're like, hey, guys, go collect the bread that fell. Like they're going to the garden or something of that sort. And it must have. It must have gotten to the point of it taken so easily for granted. Oh, yeah, God's going to provide. You know, he's did that. He, he, he protected me and just move farther and farther away from God, forgetting all that he had done. See, he demonstrated his loving kindness to his people over and over and I, and I wonder how many times we have begun to question God ourselves, to question his love and his goodness to us when we encounter hard times and suffering. How many of us have not only questioned God's love, but we've complained to him for all the ways that we're suffering now. And we completely ignore all the years of provision and bounty. You know, we've, have we forgot God's goodness this morning? He woke you up, friends. He gave you the ability for your heart to pump blood through your body. Breath. He provided for you just this morning. Oh, if we're honest with ourselves, we're just like them. We forget all so quickly. And God wasn't done what he would do providing. Look at verse 11. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So he provided for them teachers to come alongside to help them, preachers. And they disdained them. See, They they couldn't handle those who were called to correct them. The very presence of Nazarites became annoying to the Israelites as they witnessed the contrast of their lifestyle to their own. And so what do they do? He says they tempted them to sin. You know, the Nazarites weren't to drink and so they were like, hey, have a, have a drink. If misery loves company, so do sinners. See, sinners hate being reminded of what they are. And so Israel sought to eliminate them. They, they, they tempted them. They wanted to get them out of there. You shall not prophesy. I want you out. Israel became like the very people from whom God had rescued them from. But God had had enough. Their sin had risen high enough and the lion is roaring against his people. Verse 13. Behold, I will press you down in your place. As a cart full of sheaves presses down fight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength nor shall the mighty save his life he who handles the the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself nor shall he who rides the horse save his life and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day declares the Lord God roars against his people he was the one who brought them up and rescued them over and over and over, and now he's going to press them down. Just as the wealthy and powerful press down the poor and weak, the Lord would press down upon his people. The weight of judgment would be such that Israel would be crushed under, like a wagon under a heavy load. And you need to notice the irony here. They would have so much ill-gotten abundance and prosperity that the cart would break under the weight and crush them. Sometimes our sins ultimately suffocate us. God often uses what has been the object of our sin as his instrument of judgment against us. And yet, We learn from the scriptures that God would not allow his people to sit under judgment forever. There would be another. There would be someone. There would be one who would be pressed down in our place, who would take the load of judgment for us, for them. He would be crushed and broken and beaten. And Jesus would come, ultimately the Lord of glory, to take the ultimate penalty, due sin. This is why we sing about this so frequently. Because we can't get over it. We can't get over the gospel. Jesus' blood, shed for us on the cross, forgave my debt. You know, he's never failed me yet, friends. He's never failed you. And yet, there's still consequences to sin. God would judge his people, they would suffer for their rejection of him. Not long after Amos' prophecy, Israel was carried away by the Assyrians. God would be faithful to his word. There would be consequences for their sin. And when God's people love God, they will love their fellow human beings and treat them with respect and care. Regardless if they're Christians or not. Friends, I believe Amos 1 and 2 is very clear the Lord will always stand up to bullies, He will bring justice. I told you these were heavy chapters. And just to bait you to come next week, it's going to be even heavier. God's view of people is much different than our, our world. God cares about how people treat each other. God especially cares about those who are defenseless and weak. God cares about us and how we use our power and privilege and positions in this world. God cares about how we follow him, about how we listen to his word. See, the way we conduct our lives might seem right in our own eyes, but is it right in God's eyes? That's the question you need to ask yourself. We need to earnestly think through this, friends. Amos is definitely a heavy book, but there's, there, there's things for us to get to know about God, to know him and trust him. See, Israel had long forgotten about God and his word. They were supposed to be a witness to him, but they were caught up in themselves. They had forgotten about God. They forgot about how He had rescued and kept them and how they're to treat others. But God would remind them, He would bring the word for them to listen. And we need to listen to the word. We must be consistent in our pursuit to know and worship God. I read of this statement, then I'll be done here. It's a short biographical account of Pastor George Butrick, written by Thomas Long. He says, George Butrick was from 1927 to 1954, pastor of Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York. One week he had been off on a speaking engagement and was flying back to New York City. On the plane he had a pad and pencil and was making some notes for his next Sunday sermon. The man seated next to him was eyeing with him what curiosity what he was doing. Finally, the curiosity got the best of him, and he said to Buttrick, I hate to disturb you. You're obviously working hard on something, but what is it that you're working on? And he responded, I'm a Presbyterian minister. I'm working on my sermon for Sunday. And he responded, oh, religion. I don't like to get all caught up in the ins and outs and complexities of religion. I like to keep it simple. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule, that's my religion. Religion. And Buttrick said, I see, and and what do you do? Well, I'm an astronomer. I teach at the university. And he said, oh, yes, astronomy. I don't like to get caught up in the ins and outs of the complexities of astronomy. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, that's my astronomy. (laughs) I was amused by that story, I'm sure you are too. Because if you know anything about astronomy, it's, it's just incredibly complex. And reducing it to a kid's song is silly. Friend, God is there to be known even more than the stars above. And He has revealed the truth about Himself in His Word. And so, knowing and understanding this truth is part of our worship to Him. We need to listen to the Word. And we listen to the Word when we read the Word, when we study the Word, when we sit under the preaching and teaching of the Word. Friends, that's what they got wrong in Amos. So we need to listen to him. Too much is given, much is required. We don't have any excuses, friends. So read the word. Seek to obey the word by the Spirit's help. Would you pray with me? God, I, I thank you for your people. I thank you for their attentiveness this morning, even though I've gone long. And we thank you for your provision, wonderful provision that you've made for us and for our sins in Jesus Christ. And we we give you praise that the punishment we deserve for our self-regard, for our selfishness, for all the messes that we have made in our relationships, in this life, and with you, all of that has fallen on Jesus Christ if only others would, would understand this and repent of their sins and turn to you. God, we, we ask that you would cause the truth of your good news to weigh upon our hearts. We pray that the hope that we can have in you would be heavy and that you would pull us away to, away from the smaller things that snare us in this word, world and, and, and pull us towards you. And we give you praise for this great news that you've given us through your word. And we ask this all in Jesus' name, amen.